You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. So we don't know all the results. But we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. Our U.S. election correspondent will reflect on a bizarre week in Iowa. Also ahead, inspired by LAX's efforts to stress test its new concourse, we'll present a definitive guide to airport etiquette and... You're very fond of him, aren't you? You wouldn't want anything to happen to him. Does he feel the same about you? You wouldn't want to serve out that five-year sentence, would you? Now, no one is Spartacus. Remembering Kirk Douglas, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. The 2020 US presidential election campaign got properly underway this week. In what is almost certainly going to prove an entirely appropriate start, it began with a bizarre and embarrassing shambles which spawned dozens of inane conspiracy theories. The Iowa caucuses, normally merely baffling, were rendered completely incomprehensible by a failure of the vote-counting technology. The simplest explanation that fits the facts is that Iowa cunningly engaged in some or other skullduggery seeking to maximise the tiny window of attention that he's granted every four years by a usually correctly uninterested world. But for the moment, it seems that Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg kind of won and everybody else kind of lost. Thomas Lewis, our Toronto bureau chief, temporarily repurposed as US election correspondent, was in Iowa watching the Omni shambles unfurl. He joins me now. Um, Thomas, at the end of this week, are you any the wiser than you were at the beginning? Um, Short answer, no, probably, Andrew. But I think one thing we are clearer on is the sort of standing of Joe Biden, if you like, Uh, the former vice president, of course, who for quite some time has been seen as the sort of slightly inevitable you know, sort of Teflon um, opponent to Donald Trump who would essentially win no matter day of the week the vote vote was held on. Iowa shook that idea pretty solidly, given the rise of Pete Buttigieg, the the former mayor of the Indiana town of South Bend, who, as you say, kind of won alongside Bernie Sanders. Um, There's been lots of challenging to those results now. The chair of the DNC yesterday, the Democratic National Committee, said that they might need to re-canvas some of of those votes. Obviously, Bernie Sanders' campaign is quite angry about that. Pete Buttigieg is raising, his campaign is raising concerns um, that uh, they want some kind of sort of relook at some of those votes that were taken in certain parts. So the mess of Iowa on Monday night really hasn't ebbed at all. And I think given that New Hampshire, the first primary of this cycle, is only a few days away now, uh, it obviously raises the stakes pretty dramatically if the stakes weren't high enough for that vote. Uh, but I definitely think that the, the Democratic National Committee will want things to to settle down and not to add to this confusion or this sense of uncertainty uh, that even the process itself of um, voting in a, a candidate for the Democrats to take on Donald Trump uh, is in dis- array and continues to be so. Are we actually any the wiser or is anybody actually the wiser as to what went wrong with the technology? 
The Iowa Democratic Party has been pretty vague, to be honest. They've sort of said that it was a glitch uh, from an app that was being trialed for the first time in Iowa to try and make things, ironically, run a lot smoother. Um, the Iowa caucuses are kind of a, a delightfully low-fi affair. It's people in a room either walking from one side of the room to the other to mark their support for a particular candidate or even putting their hands in the air and calling out a number um, as the number of voters for that candidate is tallied. Um, This app that was developed by former staffers of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign um, was meant to make all of that sort of, you know, all of that sort of low finest, if you like, kind of just streamline it slightly and make sure that the, the results were getting into HQ. Uh, much more quickly. That just didn't happen, a glitch in the software, but we just don't really know much more about that at all. Uh, the party itself has said that the, the sort of the vote itself, the raw data as they described it, was absolutely solid. Uh, but yes, we it looks like that the Iowa caucuses, which were run on a new system for the first time in some time this time around, coupled with this new bit of software they were trying to use, just all went kind of awry. Will there be concerns among the Democratic Party that whoever they end up nominating, that the party as a whole uh, will be reputationally damaged by what has happened in Iowa? Because it's not a good look, is it? You are trying to present yourself as an alternative apparatus of national government and you can't even organise a few thousand Iowans in high school gymnasiums. Yeah, it's not a good look at all. And I think, you know, the Republicans and Donald Trump particularly will have already gone to town on the fact that, you know, even an internal political mechanism for the Democrats totally fell apart to all effects. I think that if this continues, and I think particularly it'll be interesting if the results continue to be tight, as they were, for example, in 2016, when Bernie Sanders challenged Hillary Clinton, and that challenge was far more substantial than her campaign had ever imagined. So the primary process went on far longer than they usually do. These things are usually decided pretty much on Super Tuesday, which takes place this time on the 3rd of March. Um, But, you know, the 2016 primary campaign for the Democrats went on much, much longer. Um, I think, you know, Super Tuesday will be decisive for the Democrats as well, given that Mayor Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, of course, has basically skipped the first two stages of the primary campaign and ploughed the Super Tuesday states with huge sums of money via television commercials. And if you look at the opinion polls, his approval rating in those states seems to be ticking up pretty healthily. If you couple that with kind of the rise of Pete Buttigieg, obviously the battle between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, if they continue to be close. Joe Biden, of course, has traditionally huge support among African-American voters. And the first states with big African-American populations will vote on Tuesday, Super Tuesday, excuse me, too. So if things continue to be close and continue to look fractured, I think there will be a case, given that the challenges to Donald Trump um, are just not really making any headway at all. And he's winning, seems to be winning all of these early contests pretty pretty quickly and pretty handily, then I think, you know, that might also give a bit of a message that, well, the Democrats themselves don't even know what they want. So how can we as voters possibly know? Thomas Lewis in Iowa, thank you. Now time for our regular weekly look at what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week that as a means of tallying votes, human beings counting paper ballots by hand is yet to be improved upon.
In the United States, the Democratic Party found a way to make the first big set piece of the presidential primary season, the Iowa caucuses, whatever they even are, even more bewildering than usual. For reasons infuriatingly opaque, a coding glitch, a runaway pig or something, the results of the Iowa caucuses were released late and then incompletely. As far as it was possible to tell, former Vice President Joe Biden did pretty badly, and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg did pretty well. Here's Monocle's Electoral Mishaps Desk Chief Thomas Lewis bemusedly reporting from Iowa on Wednesday's briefing. We understand that there's a glitch in the app that the Democratic Party here were trying to use to streamline the process of collecting the votes from across the state, but he didn't really go into much detail of that, and that has been the cause of some speculation since. The circus now proceeds to New Hampshire for Tuesday's primary, where the Democrats can both console themselves and tempt fate with the re- assurance that things can only improve. We learned that the man the Democrats hope to defeat in November, US President Donald Trump, is not someone you want on your pub quiz team if the perennial subject of American state capitals comes up. After the Kansas City Chiefs came back from the dead to tip over the San Francisco 49ers in Sunday's Super Bowl, Trump tweeted his congratulations on how well the Chiefs had represented the great state of Kansas. There were, of course, two glaring errors in this statement. One is that Kansas City is, like Dorothy and Toto, not in Kansas. It's in Missouri. Or as former Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill put it on Twitter, as if channeling the president's pub quiz teammates after the answer sheets were marked, it's in Missouri, you stone-cold idiot. The other error Trump made in referring to the great state of Kansas is, of course, that Kansas is not a great state. It's a 7 out of 10 at best. We also learned, as we long suspected, that Trump's impeachment trial would be an abject cringing bust. But we did learn that one Republican senator was willing, when the crunch came, to refuse his ladle of Kool-Aid. Mitt Romney of Utah became the first senator in US history to vote against a president from his own party in an impeachment trial. The president asked a foreign government to investigate his political rival. The president withheld vital military funds from that government to press it to do so. The president delayed funds for an American ally at war with Russian invaders. The president's purpose was personal and political. Accordingly, the president is guilty of an appalling abuse of public trust. We learned indeed that shame as a factor in politics may be making an overdue comeback, and that one German state is going to have to rewrite the section of their record book covering shortest serving Minister President. On Wednesday, Thomas Kemmerich of the Free Democrats formed a state government in Thuringia with the support of Alternative for Deutschland, the unsavoury gaggle of nativist headbangers who respectable German parties have hitherto regarded from the far end of a barge pole. On Thursday, after enduring 24 hours of ferocious contumely from all points up to and very much including Chancellor Angela Merkel, Kemmerich thought better of the arrangement and announced his resignation. Here's Politico's Matthew Karnichnig on Thursday's Globalist. This, I think, says more about the fracturing of the German political system and just the strength of the far right in Eastern Europe, number two, than it does about 
you know, breaking taboos and, and this type of thing, which has been the focus here over the last 24 hours. Elsewhere in political embarrassment news, we learned that we need to revise even previous expansive estimates of the limits of the vanity of President Gurbanguly Berdi Mukhamadov of Turkmenistan. Berdi Mukhamadov's previous exercises in self-glorification have included the dissemination of a video of himself playing basketball on a bicycle, another of him doing donuts in an SUV next to a burning gas crater and a song in which he rapped with his grandson which to declare what no Turkmen rock critic could without incurring a one-way ticket to the salt pile was not very good Anyway, age appears to be weighing upon Berdi Mukhamadov, now 62, ahead of a presidential visit to the northeast Turkmen region of Labap. Male state employees over 40 have been instructed to desist from dyeing their hair, lest they appear less grey than the great helmsman, who, though he has himself kicked the Grecian 2000 in recent years, seems somewhat sensitive on the subject. And we learn that even if the Jared Kushner plan is not going to be what brings peace to the Middle East, and spoiler alert, it isn't, there are still points of agreement between Israeli and Palestinian which might perhaps be built upon. For we learned this week of a minor scandal within the intelligence services of the Israel Defence Forces. It was revealed that an undercover officer had been dispatched to a West Bank eatery, clearly outstanding but maddeningly unidentified, to procure tahini for what was primly described as the non-operational needs of his unit. Listeners with an especially morbid interest in Middle Eastern rancour may recall the so-called hummus wars of a few years back, when rivalry over ownership of the popular chickpea dish led to an arms race of outsized hummus dishes between Israel, Palestine and Lebanon. The Arab-Israeli village of Abu Ghosh eventually served up one weighing four tonnes. If it turns out they can get together on tahini, anything might be possible. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Airports are almost entirely populated by people who only want to get out of them. This may be why it often seems that little thought is given to making them pleasant places to be. Los Angeles's epically unlovable LAX is kind of trying, however. Prior to the opening of its new midfield satellite concourse, LAX is soliciting 500 volunteers to come and shamble haplessly about in it to stress test the facilities. Well, Earlier, we heard more on this from Monocle's transport correspondent, Gabriel Lee. It sounds as if what they're planning to do is run a bunch of scenarios, and they want people from all walks of life, from, you know, old to young, disabled, everything, to sort of have a small simulation of how it will be in in real life. So uh, they're going to email them the day before saying, you're in this scenario or that scenario. It may be, you know, a child is lost or or 100 people have to try and sleep on the floor or something like that, you know, to see if things go wrong, how it is and how people find it. And, and yeah, and, and hopefully they're going to tell everybody, make sure you get no more than three hours sleep the night before. Uh, try not to prepare yourself with any idea of what you're doing. Uh, ideally, if you could be wearing one of those absolutely inexplicable, stupid, inflatable neck pillows, that would probably help dress like you've barely got out of bed, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think all that would help. And, you know, I, I think uh, they're not going to seasoned travelers for this. They're going to your average person. And, and it's interesting that the, the volunteer sign-up is already full. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> wants to do this. And, uh, you know, they want these people who, you know, they, they want to see, 
can people read that sign who doesn't, who don't, you know, so, uh, someone who is not a seasoned traveler? Can they, by that sign, can they see where to go? I am joined with still further on this subject by Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello, Daniel Bache and Bill Luti. There was a queue round the block for people who wanted to come and complain about the behaviour of their fellow air travellers. Uh, Bill, let's start with you. Um, my theory is that the reason be- people behave so monstrously in airports is not just that they're baffled and confused, they often are, but there's something weirdly infantilizing and therefore disinhibiting about the way we are treated as air passengers. People who wouldn't, you know, go to anywhere else in public in their pyjamas, but, you know, turn up in airports like they're dressed for bed and five years old. I have to admit, I'm a comfy clothes wearer when it comes to get out. T- comes to flying. <laughs> so to disappoint you. Get out of here right now. I wear a three-piece suit, spats, and a top hat. I bet you still try and smoke as well, don't you? <laughs> Where are the ashtrays? <laughs> um, my, my. Um, shall I complain about yeah, airports? Yeah, please. Well, it's a bit late for this now, but because presumably the airport's already built. But my complaint is more about design and shape of the airport. Um, but this is kind of in regard to a story I have about me in an airport. Go on. Where we were waiting for a flight in Shanghai Airport. I don't know if you've been to Shanghai Airport. And it was delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And it was never mentioned when the flight would be taking off, how long the delay would be. It just said delayed. So we were down one end. The shape of Shanghai Airport is like a sausage, basically. So it's a really long thing. We were right, right, right down one end. Like, okay, we're near here. We'll hear the announcements. We both fall asleep. Me and my friend. Suddenly, I'm woken by my friend shaking me and saying, wake up, wake up. They've called the gate. It's closing and it's the other end of the airport. So we get up. I start running and I think, I've just woken up. And I don't know if you know what happens sometimes to a young man moments after he's woken up. But I look down and I'm like, oh, my God. And all I had in my hand was a book. So I just had to run through the airport, clinging this book. Anyway, we missed our flight, and I had to spend an extra night in Shanghai. What was the book? I think I, I can't. Remember. Sorry, that was me just trying. That that was me trying to ask the most irrelevant follow-up question I possibly could. It's a, it's a little, little challenge I like to set myself uh, every so often. Um, so I don't like that. They should make them round so it's easy to access all of the gates. As quickly as possible. So so Bill doesn't like the fact, Carlotta, that major international hubs are not designed and built exclusively for his personal convenience. Um, What what is it that upsets you about airports? Probably passengers like Bill from from what we just heard. Um, You you mean late and priapic and attempting to hide their shame with a maddeningly unnamed volume of literature. Exactly that. Uh, Now, there are a couple of things that annoy me about air travel, uh, especially, you know, when you have to go through... uh, European airports and that you need to get separate your liquids, etc. And people refuse to do that until they actually get their turn and they get surprised by the fact they have to do that. Why is anybody taking liquids of any sort onto a plane? That's a whole other conversation. But for the purpose of this example... um, that really annoys me. It's like you have a whole setup table. You are not going to go through security any faster if you decide to do this 
in the wrong place. Um, this is the airport equivalent of people who get to the ticket barriers in the tube and then start looking for their oyster exactly. card. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing that slightly, not slightly, really annoys me is whenever, you know, you're waiting at your gate to board a flight and people start queuing up even though they repeat the announcements over and over again that there's no point in standing in line because we're going to board by groups and people in, I don't know, group five are there to be the first in line. It's like there are... Four groups before you, there's even priority before any of you, and the plane is not going to take off any sooner if you are the first person on that flight. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to go on a bit of a rant if you can let me <laughs> keep, <laughs> you make me keep going. Uh, slow walkers as well, but yeah, that's but just in life in slow general. Slow walkers are terrible The anywhere. fact that they make you, make you, you have no way to avoid it, to go through duty-free. I'm late. I don't want to zigzag through perfumes that I hate. You make a fair point. Uh, yeah, and the fact that a duty free, they hide the place where you buy cigarettes. That's the only use for duty free. Daniel, has Carlotta covered literally everything there, or, or can you think of still further things that that grind your gears about modern airports? There's this one phenomenon in the UK, and I, I, I'd have to think if it expands beyond Europe, but it definitely doesn't happen in North America. The the mystery over your gate location. <laughs> so I don't know if it's like to keep you in the area where you buy stuff longer, mm. but. They have the same flight every day for the most part. So it's going to be at one of a number of gates or in whatever wing. So you get your your you check in and they say, oh, your gate will be announced at 1315. They know like it's going to be one of two gates probably. Why make it a mystery and then make everyone like run to the flight? I don't get that. I really don't maybe, get it. Maybe they're just trying to make your day more exciting. Yeah, my other, my other I little. Like my day was exciting. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, it, it, if, nothing if, is if, that exciting. If they had implemented a system, Daniel, of yeah. the sort you are suggesting, Bill would never have had that experience, and therefore our listeners would never have heard that story, and would not now have to spend the rest of their lives with that image in their head somewhere. Mm. The other thing is that. I, well, you know that I, in general, don't like people near me at all. I just generally don't <laughs> like people. But I am a, an extreme germaphobe. So the, the extension of, of your your home does, does not go into the airport. So personal care, I really hate, but I will never for the life of me understand this little... How how was how your experience in the bathroom today? Like push this little smiley face yep. thing? Who in their right mind would ever touch that? I, I just don't get it. And why, if you need to ask the question, you're already doing something wrong. This is an exciting segment. I feel like I'm learning a lot about my colleagues, almost all of it terrifying. What, what about the, the smiley face button after security? Yeah, well, I mean, I do like Andrew Tuck's point that he, he wrote about recently about um, why can't we all just be, I mean, you're either person A or person B, the person that helps put the security bins back or the person that just leaves leaves them for somebody else to clean up after. Something in that. That That is a good point. Just before we wind this one up, I, I want to try and end on a cheerful note. Do any of you have an airport you actually like that you think should be a model for others? I, I always say in this spot, Adelaide Airport, which is delightful. Seriously, well played, Adelaide. But I, I want to go around the rest of the table. Pick an airport you like. Well, let's just rule out Changi because that's just too great for, for everyone. Everyone's going to pick that one. But I would say the Billy Bishop, the Toronto Island Airport. I used to walk there from work. That that would be a luxury. Yeah. But Bill, uh, I presume they have this at many airports around the world, but uh, it's rare here in the UK. I think it's one of the Heathrow terminals. Maybe it's more than one, where you walk through and then you can just leave your bag with someone with the they, and they have like a check-in bag after the security place, and then you can just sit on the flight without with nothing. Yeah, it's either two or five. I can't. I think it's yeah. Ba do it, and I love getting on the airplane with nothing in my hands. It makes me feel so smug. 
Not even a book to hide your shame, well. should, should, that, should that become necessary. Carlotta? Well, not to get too sentimental, but I think it's the airport from my hometown in uh, Madeira. The, apart from the name, the Cristiano Ronaldo International Airport. Is that the one with the statue that looks more like me than it does Cristiano Ronaldo? Well, it has now been replaced, so I think a uh, it's uh, a love child. That we have there. <laughs> but the reason why I'm suggesting that airport, first, it's uh, it's quite small and convenient so literally I can leave my house when the plane lands that's the plane that eventually will depart so get there really quick on one side is all in glass on one side you see the ocean and the other archipelago in front of Madeira uh, on the other side you see the, the mountains and there's a huge outdoors area where after this after going through security after the dreadful duty-free after everything and you can just sit outside watch the planes come and go and just chill until it's time to depart. And that is quite nice. It sounds almost worth the trip on its own. Carlotta Ribello, Bill Luti and Daniel Bache, thank you all for joining us. In a moment, we will hear about the shifting paradigm of celebrity as demonstrated by the career arc of Kirk Douglas with our own celebrity, it says here, Ben Ryland. Uh, you are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. <laughs> You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Earlier this week, this mortal coil was decamped by Kirk Douglas, distinguished relic of the golden age of Hollywood, who died at the age of 103. Douglas was not merely famous, but famous in a way it's not really possible to be famous anymore. And further to that, Douglas stayed famous long past his career peak in a way that many of his peers, even those very famous at the time, did not. Well, joining me to wonder why is Monocle 24's Ben Ryland, but first, Kirk Douglas in his first big feature film. You're serving a five-year sentence. So I was told once before. You lied when you were picked up. You told the police you were employed by Sam Masterson. You think they would have believed me if I'd told the Did truth? Did you cook up that story between you? He had nothing to do with it. You're very fond of him, aren't you? You wouldn't want anything to happen to him. Does he feel the same about you? You wouldn't want to serve out that five-year sentence, would you? What are you getting at? Remember, five years. And this time you'll have to serve every day of it. You don't have to. All right, get down to it. What do I have to do? Ben, what were we listening to there? That was Kirk Douglas in his first film, The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, released in 1946. And that actress opposite him was Elizabeth Scott. That was only her second film, in fact. Uh, as There was a, a third star in that film, Barbara Stanwyck, who by that time was an absolutely huge star as well. So quite varying levels of stardom, all in that one little picture. Barbara Stanwyck, I guess, being quite a good illustration of, of what you wanted to talk about, that Kirk Douglas's fame was not only unusual the time, but unusual to the degree that it lasted, well, until now. That is very true. I mean, at the time, and this is really difficult to for us to understand because it's the the nature of celebrity and the science behind it isn't really something we ever really talk about. Uh, but, you know, Kirk Douglas was, yes, very famous at the time, but he was as famous as just about everyone else in that picture, with the exception of Elizabeth Scott, who was only on her way to stardom at, at that point. But she's an interesting uh, case study, which I'll get to in a moment. But Barbara Stanwyck is someone in particular who was as famous as you can possibly get. It's not possible to get any more famous than Barbara Stanwyck was during her career. But the thing is, the thing that makes you remain famous beyond your career is starring in a classic. 
And no one knows what a classic is until long after the film has been released and it's had time to really percolate. We know The Wizard of Oz is a classic only because it's been on television for decades and decades and decades, but no one knew that back in the 1930s when it was released. So you've got sort of strange cases where people who perhaps weren't considered as accomplished at the time that they were making their films somehow go on to become these people that everyone has heard of, and yet someone like Barbara Stanwyck, who was nominated for four Oscars, you know, she won an honorary Oscar in the 1980s uh, when she was still on on television. But someone like her somehow just she's still known to a lot of people, but doesn't have the kind of name recognition that Kirk Douglas did. So is is there a parallel career arc for Kirk Douglas in which, for example, somebody else gets cast in, in Spartacus uh, and therefore he is thought of when thought of all as a creature of his times, much as Barbara Stanwyck is? Yeah, I mean, look, there are a lot of people who were incredibly famous in their time and haven't gone on to uh, to to really be remembered. I mentioned Elizabeth Scott, who was also in that film, uh, The Strange Love of Martha Rivers. She made a lot of very successful films in her career. Uh, she was uh, one of the first actresses to star opposite Elvis Presley in a film called Loving You in the 1950s. Uh, she made a lot of film noir, which is a genre that's no longer with us. Uh, it's not possible to make a film noir in the classic way anymore because it's very much of its time. Uh, but she had all the qualities needed to make that kind of film. But it got to a point in the 1950s where she decided that really stardom wasn't for her anymore. The the celebrity tabloids had just started to really take hold. Uh, The nature of Hollywood was changing. The studio system had ended and she just didn't want to be famous anymore. And so she stopped. She quit being a celebrity. That's something that almost no one ever does. And consequently, when she passed away in uh, 2014, there were articles, obituaries, but it was mostly in the fan press. She didn't have that household name recognition anymore. Another example would be Veronica Lake, who is mostly known for the hairstyle that she contributed, which I know sounds a bit silly and facetious, but it's not. That's how she became uh, recognised long after her career. But as a face and a voice and a look, she was very much recognised by everyone in her time. Uh, But I think the important thing to remember is the reason Kirk Douglas is famous today is because he starred in some films that became immortal. They, they became examples of the art of filmmaking. And you can be incredibly famous, not star in a classic, and perhaps your legend won't go on to be as big as you might hope. Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us. That was Ben Ryland and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Charlie German and Tia Thomas. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View is back tomorrow morning. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs>